This morning our reading is from John 1, verses 9 through 18. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, Robin, uh, so much for reading. Imagine with me uh, that we're in a car together headed to meet someone that maybe you don't know so well, and I am wanting to make sure you know a little bit more about this person that we're going to meet. And so I'm giving you some background information and I'm, I'm telling you a little bit of uh, information that will be helpful to get to know that person better. I'm telling you maybe their, their marital status or how many kids they have. And maybe I'm saying she went to college here and she actually works in this field. Or maybe I'm, I'm telling you uh, something I know about this person, a story I remember to help you get to know this person that you've yet to meet or at least yet to know well for you to get them to get to know them a little bit better, I could say, I've, I've, seen, I've seen her do this, or I've seen him do this, and here is what I think you can look forward to when, when we meet. I'm giving background and qualities and experiences to set the stage for this encounter, for this meeting. And I think this is a lot of what John is doing in the first 18 verses of his gospel, of his good news, so John 1, 1 to 18, John is giving us some preliminary introduction, and then he's going to tell lots of stories and paint a very, very clear picture of who this man, Jesus Christ, is. But the first few verses, he is wanting to make sure we have some background info. What stands out to me is that John goes like right at the beginning and makes bold statements about Jesus Christ. It stands out especially because I think there is pressure these days to pretend like there really aren't that much differences in in, in religion and we're kind of all the same and we kind of all have an idea of Jesus and it's all kind of basically right. John doesn't do that. And no faithful Christian can act like they're basically Jesus is whatever you make him to be. And Christianity is kind of the same as everything else. John actually makes bold, bold claims. He doesn't open his writings with advice on good morals and ethics. He doesn't, he doesn't propose some higher thoughts that will get you in a better mindful state. Actually, what... What he does is he speaks of a personal rescuer 
who claimed and proved to be God in the flesh. And so as we're working through just these introductory verses in John 1, I want us to ask and answer a couple of questions. Robin read a moment ago in verse 9, and I, I hope you keep the Bible open there, the, where it said the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So when God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, when he arrived, the first question I want us to ask is, what was the reaction? What was the reaction to Jesus' arrival? Was it joy? Confusion? Full-on belief, like, let's go? Was it hesitant skepticism? I'm not so sure. Was it eager to hear him? Like, keep on talking? Or, or was it quick dismissal? Thank you, I've heard enough. What was the reaction? So, the verses read tell us the reaction. John, even before he writes the story of Jesus, wants us to know what the, reaction, what the reactions were. So, it was, actually, the reactions are, are different. What it says in verse 10 is one reaction is the world didn't recognize him. The world didn't recognize him. The world didn't know him. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. You can forgive people. You can forgive people for at times not knowing exactly who they're talking to, who they're around. I remember uh, going, to, uh, going to golf tournaments with my dad in my dad had this unique ability to spot every single PGA Tour. I mean, the guy that's 200th on the money list. He knew exactly who it was. And golfers aren't always that easy to spot, but he could, he could spot every single one. And yeah, go get his autograph. He's the, you know, whatever, one the whatever. And he would spot every single person. And everybody else is just like walking by, but not, but not dad. He knew who they were. I, is this one of those deals where, uh, although, yeah, Jesus was in the world, you know, you could be excused for not exactly recognizing that he was there it's, you know, it's just one of those things that happened. Actually, John wants to make it clear that it should not have gone down that way. He should not have been in this world and have made this world and everybody else not pay attention. It's, John wants to portray this as not only tragic, but foolish and really ridiculous. That people couldn't tell that, that this was the light of the world. I mean, everyone wants the light. And here the light was coming into the world and everyone should have seen it. It's inexcusable that they didn't see it. He was present. He was in the world. The world was made by him. This is his world. It's the earth that's inhabited by humans. The entire planet was made by him. But human beings didn't even recognize his true identity. They missed it. So what was the reaction? Well, we know part of the reaction was they didn't recognize him. The world didn't recognize him. And that's not okay, but the story gets worse. From there, we also recognize not only did the, the world not know him, not recognize him, but we're also told that his own people rejected him. His own people rejected him. According to verse 11, they don't receive him. They don't give him a welcome. They don't accept him. It says he came to his own, his own place, his own domain, a realm that was his, his own home, and it says his own people in verse 11 don't receive him. Different, there's debate on exactly what his own people refers to. Does it refer to just 
like the world and hum- humanity in general, or is it more specifically? I kind of lean toward more specifically it's referring to he came to his own people, the people of Israel, and they did not receive him. But, but either way, it's, it's as if he's knocking on the door of his own home and he's not getting a response. But probably more accurately, he is getting a response. The response he's getting is go away, go away. It comes to his own place and his own people do not receive him. They don't welcome him. He gets turned away at the door of his own house. And this rejection is really meant to be understood as very personal. So is that the way it all went down? Was that the reaction? Some didn't recognize him and some rejected him. Actually, scripture tells us something else in verse 12 and 13 is that while that was part of the reaction, Another part of this reaction is that some actually received him. While the world didn't recognize him, while his own people rejected him, some received him. Some welcomed his work. Some recognized his true identity. These are the people, it says, they received him. And it also says these are the ones who believe on his name. What does it mean to receive and believe? Well, the rest of the book of John, the next like, 21 chapters are going to unpack what it means to receive and believe. But believe is, believing is like this trust that's just ongoing. And it says they believe in him. Those that receive him believe in him. And why, why use that phrase? It, it's to remind us it's not just something that goes on in the head. It's not just a, an intellectual acceptance of facts about Jesus. It's not just a recognition of a, a truth about Christ. It's, it's a total commitment. You believe in him. A total commitment of yourself to Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as Lord. Dedicated allegiance to Jesus. You believe, it says in verse 12, these are the ones who believe in his name. I think the way John's using that, in his name, is much the way the rest of the Bible uses it. Believe in his character. Believe in his reality that he is who he says he is. So what happens for those who do receive? What happens for those who do believe? John doesn't tell us yet what will happen to those who don't recognize and those who reject. He doesn't tell us that yet, but he does tell us what happens to those who believe and receive. He says, for those who believe and receive, they are given the right, they are given the privilege to become children of God. That's what happens to those who believe and those who receive. God takes them, one writer has said, God takes them and transforms them and fills them with the Spirit and enables them to be the kind of people they could never be in their own strength by their own actions, by their own wisdom. God takes people like you and me and he brings us into his family. We become children of God children of his. I, I think verse 13 that follows you know, right on the heels of verse 12 is, is critical so that we don't misunderstand. And I think John wants to make sure that we have no possibility of, uh, of misunderstanding something here. He goes a little bit further and he says, these children of God are ones that are born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man. But these children of God are born of God, born because of God. 
I think we might need to be spiritually kind of rewired in this area. Because I, I think there are many who believe that being in God's family is just something that happened because they're part of a fairly religious family and they grew up in an environment where people went to church and seemed religious. And so, of course, they're in God's family. But you'll notice John is highlighting something different here. Or you might think, well, of course I'm a, I'm a child of God. I mean, I, I, of course I'm a child of God because I was raised with a sense of right and wrong. And I was raised with a sense that, like, when you do something wrong, you ought to feel bad about it. And so I've carried this guilt, and I know, I, I know I'm not the person I need to be. So I, I, I know that if I've done something wrong and I want to really be a child of God, I've got to make all kinds of effort to live a better life. And so I've got to go confess my sins to a priest, and I've got to make God a ton of promises that I'll never do that again. And I've got to say a certain number of prayers a certain way, and I've got to make donations to good causes. And maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, you can re-earn and keep your status as a child of God. I think that's the way a lot of people think. And John pushes in the exact opposite direction. He says that being a child of God is not about human achievement. Being a child of God is not some heroic act you did. Not some lifetime of being as moral as can be reasonably expected. It's not about some great pilgrimage you've made or some act of suffering you've done. It's not because of a good family bloodline, not because of a strong act of your will, not because of spiritual techniques, but through and because of God. This past week marked, and I know not everybody remembers the date, particularly they trusted in Jesus Christ. But I, but I do remember it kind of marked the date when, as a child, I placed my faith and at least went public with, I believe this, I trust in Jesus. And that was several, several years ago, marked this week. And in that moment, it wasn't about being a part of a family that were Christians. In that moment, it wasn't because I, I just had enough effort to make myself a child of God in that moment. When I passed from death to life, it was an act of God and his kindness. The, sh- the reaction to Jesus is mixed, is, isn't it? And so something in me wants to ask kind of a previous question. If this is like when Jesus came, he got this sort of reaction where some didn't recognize him, others rejected him, and some believed. I want to ask the question, how did he arrive? What, what did it mean for Jesus to come in this world? So when he's the true light that is coming into the world... And when it says in verse 10, he was in the world. And when it says in verse 11, he came to his own place. What was the arrival of Jesus really like that garnered this kind of reaction, such a mixed reaction? What was the arrival of Jesus really like? And John 1.14 describes it. This is one of those verses that like every verse in the Bible matters. And this verse matters deeply. And gives us clarity in ways that, that even other verses don't. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh. So we're asking the question, like, what was the arrival of Jesus really like? And this is the answer. The word became flesh. And in verse 17, the word is identified as Jesus. So 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. It was full of grace and truth. What we're talking about here is what, what people call the incarnation, the infleshing. That God has come in flesh. So what was the arrival of Jesus really like? It was like this. The Word really was made human. The Word was made human. The Word which was, according to verse 1 of John 1, in the beginning, and it was with God and was God. The Word has now been made human. God the Son, who is called the Word here, has taken on a new nature, that of a human. Someone has said it like this, He became what He was not, that's a human being, without ceasing to be what he always was, and that's God. Some of this begins to start blowing categories. So another way of saying is, to his existence as a fully divine person was added existence as a fully human person. As a matter of fact, I don't have a ton of categories and analogies to say, well, it's kind of like the thing where it's blowing these categories because he's the only one of his kind that actually has both of these natures residing in one person named Jesus. So it's not as if he gave up one to become the other. It's also, and by this I I, I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but here's what didn't happen. Jesus didn't get a temporary costume. So this room was filled with people with costumes last night, and it was fun and enjoyable for the most part until the sugar high died down. What Jesus did not do is assume like a human costume for a while. And then when he was done with that, take it off and go back to being God like he always was. That's actually not what's being said. He's not acting apart for a little while where he could pretend for a little bit and then we all go home when the show's over. He takes on human flesh and it's no costume. He takes on all the limitations and all the difficulties with come that come with being a human. And the rest of John unpacks these and details them. The Word was made a real human. And it's also to how, how did he arrive? The Word lived among people. So this one who was in the beginning, this one who in the beginning was with God and was God, this is the one who actually lived among people. He took up his residence among us. And it's interesting, if you go back into the original language, when it says he dwelt among us or he lived among us, the, it's the same word here that is used for pitching a tent or making a tabernacle. It's, it's interesting, the word choice. He, he lived among us. He made his dwelling with us in a personal way. So when, when the word was made flesh, he didn't go up into some mountain in the Himalayas in some sort of secluded monastery and tell everybody else, all the riffraff, to keep away. But he actually came to us. He lived among us. He came up close. And so we, we, we could see him. We, we have eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts of who he was. And why does he do that? He does that because if we are to know God, it isn't going to be first because we kind of found our way and made our way to him. It's not going to because we, it be because we 
we're so smart that we figured out exactly all the things related to God and we kind of climbed the intellectual ladder and rationally we made our way to figure out all things related to God. It's not going to be because of that. It's not going to be because we figured out how to look deep inside our soul and dig out the stuff that is there and kind of process all this deep truth that's in us. It's not going to be because we found God there. And it's not going to be because we felt kind of an energy or a force or we got that, that force of enlightenment and we now kind of know the mysteries of the universe. How we are going to get to know God is not through our effort of climbing anything, but it's through God coming to our world. It's through Jesus Christ saying, this is who I am. And now we know. And now we see. He took the initiative by coming in flesh. The word really was made human. The word lived among people. And the word revealed unique glory. Just interesting, John says, we saw. We saw his glory. This verse is so loaded. I do want to pick up more as we come in in future weeks, but I I want us to make sure we don't lose our attention on the fact that John says we saw his glory. If you lived in first century Israel and you were familiar at all with the story of the Old Testament of the, the Bible, when you would hear words like tent and then hear the word glory kind of attached to a dwelling place or a tent, I don't think you could help but think of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers about the tent of meeting, about the tabernacle that, that was made and that God blessed and God's glory was found and God's presence was, was felt in that place called a tabernacle, called a tent of meeting, where there was glory there. I, I think you would have heard John, rightfully, I think you would have heard John making allusions to that and echoes because the story didn't come out of nowhere. And then maybe you would think of the temple and how the temple, which is a more permanent structure, not a tent, but think of 1 Kings 8 where the temple is built and God's glory inhabits that and just fills that place. And you would think of like a dwelling place, a residence that God is like pleased to dwell in. But what we may have been shocked to read if we were reading John for the first time is to discover that any sort of tent or temple, any sort of tabernacle or place of meeting All of that in the Old Testament was merely a warm-up. All of that was a shadow. Oh, God was present. But all of that was a shadow. The reality, the substance would be a person. A person that would be more glorious than any tent or temple ever could be. John says we were eyewitnesses to his unique glory. We saw glory. When God was made flesh, what glory did John see? Was it that wherever Jesus walked, somehow this like glow was all around him? And John said, we saw, like you couldn't miss it. Like here's a crowd of of 10,000 people and there's the one glowing. We saw glory. Was Was that the glory he saw? Or was it whenever... Jesus would open his mouth, there would be this, you know, beautiful angelic choir or instrumental music just kind of proceeding out of his mouth. And you go, we saw glory because every time he talked, it, it was, ah, never, never have I seen anything like that. Actually, the picture that John paints of the glory he saw that he was an eyewitness to is so, so different. 
This is a longer quote from uh, someone who's written a lot on the book of John called Leon Morris. I just want to hear, I want you to hear how he answers the question of like, what glory did John see? What glory did the apostles see? This is what Leon Morris says. They saw the carpenter of Nazareth. They saw a man who brought cheer to some lowly wedding in an obscure Galilean village. They saw one whom Nicodemus thought he could patronize. They saw one with whom an unimportant Samaritan woman argued. And as for that matter, so did many of the Jews in Jerusalem. They saw one that healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda and was promptly denounced by that same man to his enemies. What glory did they see? They saw him defend himself and his attitude toward the Sabbath. They saw him feed a multitude of people with a few loaves of barley bread and some small fishes and then go on to be quizzed by an ignorant crowd of people who challenged him because he had not brought the manna from heaven like Moses did. They heard him speak at the Feast of Tabernacles. They were interested spectators of the controversy that resulted. He healed a blind man from birth, and he stirred up more controversy. He raised Lazarus from the dead and stirred up yet more controversy. And as John comes to the climax of his narrative, he tells of a long talk Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. And even that was a talk that they clearly did not understand as they should have. Then he was betrayed into the hands of his enemies by one of his followers and disowned publicly three times by another. Finally, he was tried before the Roman authorities with his own people bringing the accusation. He was nailed to a cross and left to die. And John says, we saw his glory. What glory did you see? I know what glory looks like in 2018, or at least what we make it out to be. Glory looks like fame and red carpets. And glory looks like trophy presentations and award shows. And glory looks like magazine covers and photo shoots. And John says, I have got a different glory than any of that. A glory that comes in service. Again, Leon Morris says, when people needed help, he helped them. When they were sick, he healed them. Where there were ignorant folk, he taught them. Where they were hungry, he he fed them. All the time he was seeking the needy. He was not found in the high places of the earth. Perhaps we may fairly say that people in the high places felt they had sufficient resources and could cope on their own. It was not to such that the word came. All his life, he was among God's little people. Those who in one way or another felt their need. This is what Christ came to do. And that is glory. Ultimate service. Ultimate service that ends in the the picture of service, and that is Christ on the cross. Again, serving needy people, laying down his life for us. John could look back to a life. I'm sure there are many that could look and say, actually, I'm unimpressed by what Jesus did. And John says, you need new eyes to see it because we saw his glory. We saw his unique glory. As we think about who Jesus is, I think it's a a fair question to ask, like, why, why do we spend this amount of time 
thinking and talking about Jesus. We've been in John 1 for three weeks. We'll spend some more time looking specifically at the identity of Jesus. I'm guessing that many of you have heard heard teaching about Jesus for a lot of the years of your life, maybe, maybe even all your life. You've, you've heard Sunday school lessons. Maybe you've listened to things. And do, do we really, do we really need one more talk on the identity of Jesus? So one answer to that would be is I, I think we do because there is, this world sometimes gets really foggy on exactly who Jesus is. And there's lots of opinions and lots of people like to think of Jesus in certain ways, but often those have like very little basis in the Bible. And so I think if what we've done is get clear and make sure that we are identifying a member of the Trinity accurately, I think that's a good thing. I think that's time well spent and a big step forward. But there is a much, much deeper reason why I am, I am so, so desiring for you to hear the truth about Jesus. And that is because as I've thought of these deep things that the Bible says, some of which are going to take eternity to figure out, even if we ever figure them out. That's kind of run parallel this week for me with serving as a pastor. And serving as a pastor means you walk with people through some really, really difficult times. And so I'm I'm studying and preparing and reading these things about God becoming flesh. And at the same time, I'm hearing people share very personal things and ask for me to pray for them. I'm seeing people get the news that someone they care about very much has passed away and life's going to be different for them. I hear of long family struggles that it's not like that's ever going to, you know, be tied up neatly in a bow and life will move on. I talk to people and you realize that the struggle of divorce or Sexual sin is a deep fight for someone's life. You, you talk to people and you pray with them and pray for them because they want to have a child and, and they can't have a child. And you talk to another person and you realize they're walking through very, very difficult times and they're, they're overwhelmed with, with anxiety or maybe depression. And, and you talk with them and hear of someone that they love that even is kind of thought of committing suicide, and and you begin to realize this painful, dark world we live in, and you realize pretty quickly as a pastor, you're not the answer to anything or anyone. You're not the answer. And so you you know these people that are in need, these people that we all care about, they, they need help and they need an answer, and you realize you're not the answer. But the hope I have to answer, the help I have even to give in that moment actually so relates to what I've been talking about all, Sunday, all, all, all day today because the hope I have isn't to offer like an ideal or, you know, I hear that difficult thing you're going through, but I've got a cause we can all like get behind. Or I hear about the pain and the loss and I actually have an idea. It's not much help in the moment. Actually, what I have to help and what I have to give hope with is a person. So you watch a person that's drowning, and I remember that I know a person who is God in flesh, who is a rescuer, who can deliver people that are drowning, who can save people. And they're not saved by an idea or a proposition, they're saved by a person. I think of 
bowing my head, being overwhelmed with someone's sorrow and difficulty, and thinking, what can I do? Well, I can pray, and I'm not going to pray to an idea or a cause. I'm going to pray to a person who is at the right hand of God, who is living and hearing prayers, and is interceding for this person who is able to, to care for us, who is the priest who can take our request to God. The hope isn't a philosophy. It's a person who lives in and changes us from the inside out. He lives in us. The hope is a person who can restore us to the Father. The hope is a person that when everything just seems like it's chaotic and the world seems falling apart, we don't just look for like, well, we hope for better days in the future. Actually, what we sang about this morning was we hope for a person, a person to come back, a person to set it all right. And that's all the hope we have. Why do I think it matters that we make sure we identify Jesus? I want you to know exactly who this person is. And I want you to follow him forever. And I want you to take every piece of your life and wrap it around him. The word became flesh and he lived among us and we saw his glory. Can I ask you to bow your head? In a moment, we'll sing some more to this person and about this person. But for now, if you do not know him, I'm not, I'm not asking you to convert to an idea. I'm asking you to believe and trust in a person, to not be like those who re- reject him or fail to recognize him, but those that would receive him. And today, today may start your spiritual walk where you say, today I'm, I'm going to trust in him, and maybe even one step further, I'm going to go public with that trust. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would come to know this person that has meant everything to my life and everything to so many people in here. That you would come to know Jesus Christ. You say, Curtis, I have a lot more questions than answers right now. Would you let us know that? Talk to any pastor afterwards. Or maybe you say, I just need someone to pray for me about this. I'd, I'd love to pray for you. There will be people up front available at the end of our service to pray with you. Father, give us help right now, and I pray for a person that I may not have even met that is struggling, and really there's a war of whether they will believe and receive or whether they will reject. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, see the truth about your son, Jesus Christ, that there might be hope in leaving this place. Lord, I thank you for your son who has changed our lives. And we are not what we once were because of what he's done for us. And so we remind ourselves of one of the greatest mysteries of the world, and that is that you have come to us. And I pray that you would redeem, Lord, my prayer would be you would save every person in this room, that you would rescue and deliver by your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.